This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space, a monthly podcast of artist talks, panel discussions, and other events. Tēnā tātou katoa. Oumai hoki mai ki tēnei kaupapa kōrero o the Physics Room. Oumai, whakarongo mai, whakatau mai. My name is Abby Kinane, and I'm the director of the Physics Room an art space dedicated to developing and promoting contemporary art and critical discourse in Aotearoa. Based in central Ōtautahi since 1996, we assist artists with resources and opportunities to enable creative and professional development and work to support the acknowledgement and understanding of contemporary art among New Zealanders. Our goal is to actively seek links between the arts and other areas of cultural production, and to involve art as a contributing voice in wider intellectual, social and political debate. In this episode of Art Not Science, I talked to Rachel Shearer about the seven-channel sound installation, Tehuri Wai, that she made in collaboration with Cathy Livermore for our current exhibition, Light Enough to Read By. We are also lucky to be able to share a single-channel version of the work in this episode as well. In this work, each of the principal Waitaha winds announce themselves. Tehuri Wai is made in acknowledgement of the Kaitahu narrative of these winds, with particular reference to the record of Tione Tari Tikau's conversation with Heres Beatty in 1920. Tikau speaks of the ancestors of Maui, starting with his grandfather, Mahuika, on land, and Muri Rakafenua at sea, who married Hinepu Nui Otoka and had five daughters Hini Aroraki, Hini Aro Aropari, Hini Hauone, Hini Roroki and Hinirotia. Tikau writes, These wahine still hold important positions in connection with this world. They are in the points of the wind and stand at points round the world and hold or loose the principal winds. The mother holds te pū or te hō, the power of the wind, generally, but her own particular position is in the southwest, where she holds te pū or te toka, the origin or beginning of the southerly winds. Accordingly, others hold responsibility for the northerly, westerly and easterly winds, holding the sands, echoes on the cliffs. The eldest, Hini Aroraki, is responsible for the soaring of the birds. Tikau says that each of these winds holds a big tafiri-firi, a fan, which he uses to fan winds over the earth. But what these fans are made of, I know not. In the work, the speakers are cited in relation to each wind's direction. Livermore's voice or breath, ho, wind, vitality, holding the narrative. A further speaker holds the place of water, a relationship fundamental to each of the winds. In Livermore's words, winds are what move the water, the weather. In this work, warm breath is returned to the oral account and the names of the area's winds are called out, listened for and heard. Tehuriwai transforms the gallery, along with other works in the exhibition by Fiona Connor and Lucy Skeyer, each turning to narrative as to oxygen, light, matter, as necessary. 
Light enough to read by emerged from discussions around the return of the physics room's library into the gallery and to public access. In recent years, since the shift to our current site in the Registry Editions building, our publications have sat in boxes. The specific needs of the library, sufficient and natural light, space for reading, listening, resting and being together, offered a script for us to work with in the development of this project. Underpinning it was the idea of the exhibition itself as a form of publication, and text or narrative as something social, material and lived, subject to conditions of light and weather. You can read more about the exhibition and the artists on our website at www.physicsroom.org.nz. And now, let's head into the gallery to hear from Rachel about Tehuri Wai. Kia ora mai tato. No mai hoki mai ki the Physics Room. Welcome, welcome back to the Physics Room. It's so nice to see lots of you that seen around and I'm especially grateful for you coming this weekend when I know there's a lot, a lot on, so it means a lot to have you have you here for some listening time with our amazing artist Rachel Shearer. Rachel is part of this exhibition we just opened a couple of days ago, Light Enough to Read By. I'm very happy to have an artist there. The other Fiona Connor is in Los Angeles at the moment. This is her work that we're sitting in. Lucy Skea, whose work is on the ground there, is in Glasgow. And Kathy Livermore, who's a collaborator with Rachel on, on the piece we're going to talk about today, is in Tamaki. Um, but it's so good to have you here today, Rachel. And um, yeah, thank you for coming down. Thank you for what you're going to share. I also wanted to acknowledge Michelle Wang and Hamish Peterson, who have curated this exhibition with me. So we've been a power team for this project. So yeah, to start off, I met Rachel, when did I meet you? Some time ago. The first time I was really um, spent time with Rachel's work was at St. Paul Street Gallery at AUT University. It was the project near, was it in the middle of your... Yeah, PhD. It was kind of yeah. yeah, that project was called Earth Music, and basically it was taking recordings of many of the sounds or the voices from the natural environment. That was configured into quite an amazing, immersive piece that was in the in the concrete space of that gallery. It was a really incredible um, work that I spent quite a bit of my summer with, actually, in this dark space with a with an incredible work by Rachel. But so I was super happy to be able to invite Rachel to work with her again for this project. Particularly when I reached out, I mean, we were drawing on the idea of working through the exhibition as a publication or a text, thinking about different types of texts, different types of reading. And as our conversation progressed, thinking about types of reading that weren't contingent upon words or written words or the sort of traditional forms that we might associate with reading. And I knew Rachel and secondarily Kathy were really interesting people to put some of those questions to the ideas of what it might mean to read in ways that relate more to understandings of the body or the environment around us or the, the weather and the systems that we find ourselves within. So I might hand over to Rachel to talk a bit about this piece, talk about who you are, where you're from, all of the things. Thank you again. Yeah, no, kia ora Abby. Kia ora everyone, kia ora koutou. Uh, nui kia koutou. Thanks for coming along here. I've got a, a, a little of a list of things to go through. I might not touch them all, but um, we'll see. So I've got first on my list, mihi. <laughs> um, so I guess kind of coming up to today, it's been quite busy and kind of getting the install sorted. And, um, you know, thanks to Hamish and Michelle and Audrey and Abby and all the work that you've all done and getting this together. 
pre-getting the speakers up so then it's kind of arriving and then trying to get it all happening. And I've been thinking quite a lot about decolonised spaces lately. I teach up at AUT and we're looking at redesigning our programme and thinking about you know what does a decolonised programme look like, what are these decolonised spaces and, and thinking about it in different ways. And I've been working with my iwi, Rungwhakata, and looking at different, I guess, different ways to think about going about that. Mm. And one of the things that we've been talking about is... Um, you know, in front of the marae, the paipai, you know, the space that you go through over, you know, in the pōhiri process, and that's the domain of tūmā tōinga, yeah, tōinga, so tū, a kind of the atua of war. Not so much war, that's where you're all kind of checking each other out, and there's kind of a, um, I guess, a kind of a space of working out what the relationship is. And then once you get inside the whare, the space, and this is the space of rongo, and that is where, I guess, wā nangra, knowledge and listening, so rongo, whakarongo, or, you know, whakarongo, to be like rongo, the atua, who is, uh, well, of the kumara, but, of course, you couldn't uh, grow kumara unless things were very peaceful, so he's associated with peace as well. So whakarongo, to be like rongo, to listen, uh, but it's not just to listen with your ears, it's to listen with everything, to listen with all your senses except for your eyes. Yeah, I think it's been in that space of whakarongo, having been through two with all the opening and getting everything done and then I feel like I'm finally kind of getting into this uh, space of rongo in here where I can sort of sit back and, and listen to the work. And rongo for listening is what my practice is all about. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think we were talking the other day and you made the connection to rongo whakata, to your mm. iwi. Do you mind just touching on that? Yeah, so so if I kind of start with Māori styles, um, you know, kind of getting the bigger context, and this one it's kind of like who I am and my practice and then coming down to the, the point or the focus, which is the work. So my family, he uriaho, nō te waka hirota. So the hirota waka came to the east coast um, and is associated with my family's iwi rongo whakata. So rongo, again, and whakata is to show. So it's the idea that we're kind of listening and then you express it. So that, mm. that, so that goes with the name Rungafakata. On my dad's side, actually I just found out, I didn't know my dad's family, but I finally found out where my name Shira came from. They're from Ireland and they arrived on the uh, Te Waka, Auckland, mm. in Port Chalmers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> and I could see all their names. It was a whole family of brothers called Shira and all their wives and children and they were all farm labourers. So, yep, they were shearers, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they all came from County Antrim, near Belfast. Mm. So Port Chalmers is where actually where I spent quite formative years and where I did really establish my sound practices, um, kind of early sound practices. I moved down there at a uh, young teenager and, and lived flattered with other people who were playing experimental music and... Um, Collaborating with Bruce, who had Expressway at the time, and collaborated with artists like Stella Corkery and Michael Morley. So these were very formative years playing music. Mm. So little did I know, I've been back since and visited all the gravestones of my great-great-grandparents. So, uh, yeah, so just, I know, I only just found out last oh, year who nice. they were and where they were. So that was quite of a nice, yeah, yeah nice little kind of poetic cook-up. So from there, um, Elam Art School, a bit of ex expanded cinema, um, but because I played music, I kind of became the default sound person, and it just kind of like built on from there. 
I had a great occasion where I went to a, a music industry event and they had, yes, had to answer a questionnaire and I won the prize. It was $10,000 uh, worth of musical equipment and, uh, <laughs> and that set me up with my first um, studio, uh, which I took with me to Germany. I had an opportunity to go and work with Germany with a sound engineer called David Peterson, who's from here. He was the original Gordon sound man. He's actually from Ashburton, but then he moved up here with them, and um, so this was his stomping ground. Uh, he actually died um, at the end of the last year, on the last day. Mm. And uh, so... Me out to David. Um, he was um, taught me uh, most of my sound skills, which I've been able to build on since. So, uh, yeah. Sorry, unexpected emotional moment there. No, that's understandable. When was it that visual things? I mean, you talked about expanded cinema, yeah. but when you went to Elam, for example, were you already did you have a visual practice? Did you go there to, to work in sound primarily? A bit of both. That was yeah. when um, Phil Dadson he had the intermediate department, so it was working with Phil. So it was very much about bringing in all these different aspects of, of performance and sound and mm-hmm. image. And I thought I'd just go there and experiment. Um, was playing, you know, performing and using like lots of people were um, projections. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was just kind of playing around with forms of that. But yeah, did a lot of Super 8 work and playing around with sound and image. Yeah. Uh, but when I was over in Germany and I'd taken all the gear that I'd won, and that was kind of, I moved into a project called Lovely Midget. <laughs> and that was me kind of learning how to use all this equipment as well. And that's when I experienced quite a shift with sound. Yeah, because so before that, it had been um, kind of more of a, a social thing in many ways. And there, learning sound engineering, it became very much um, sound as a physical material. So that was kind of a, uh, a shift in, in things. Coming back here, I moved you know, deeper into sound tech type stuff, post-production audio, live sound, composing for film, public installations, sound installations, uh, long-term installations with solar-powered speakers. So... Yeah, and throughout making music as well and just kind of developing my craft as I get older. Do you see a distinction between your sort of music practice as a musician and then this like sound artist? Like I know they're just labels, but do you just feel you can move quite fluidly between those things? Yeah, it's just always just a kind of slight contextual shift. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now I'm moving into, apart from, you know, sort of practice-wise, sonification so I did do I'm just about to head into talking about this work actually Mm. maybe I'll talk about that and then add on what I was going to say so just in terms of being invited here and I know Abby that you like the work that I'd done with Kathy which was a surround sound piece that was exploring Te Reo Māori so this is kind of Kathy and I have this uh, collaboration that's really about kind of sound and exploring Te Reo Māori and sound and movement in Māori you know frameworks and the materiality, and I was so drawn, yeah. this is in a piece you can listen to online called mm. Te Oro or Te Ao yeah. that Rachel made alongside her PhD thesis and the work I was so fascinated by was about the crystal becoming ponamu mm. and oh, mm. ponamu becoming crystal, sorry. Yeah. I thought of it before when you said the idea of sound becoming something really physical and I was like, mm. oh yeah, that's exactly my experience in listening to that work. I was like, oh yeah, it's about geology and it's about these like states of transformation of material Mm. and I guess moving here as well I was thinking about Ponamu as being something of this place and so yeah that was another reason when I reached out I was like what about this Ponamu work like I'd heard it in Auckland and I hadn't really thought about it being site specific it had a new resonance being here as well for me yeah yeah 
Sorry to interrupt there. No, not at all. Doing the PhD was a good opportunity to kind of focus on this idea of the materiality of sound, and it was um, really focused on um, listening to the earth through Māori and Western frameworks. And I guess the Western frameworks, there's kind of a deep listening, Pauline Oliveros, there's field recording, there's a real richness of stuff. And then in terms of the Māori um, framework, something interesting that came out is that all sounds, you know, they don't make sounds, they all have a voice, the voices of the earth, I guess. And inevitably, when you're listening to the earth as well, um, it's, you know, issues of the climate crisis and, and things come in there as well. So... There's kind of an unspoken reference here to that as well, with the water and then with the winds as well. And, uh, you know, winds and water are, you know, they're kind of the key elements of, of the weather. Mm. Yeah. So through that also I started these conversations with Cathy and, and these have been a series of works that have come through that. And this is an extension of that. And also Cathy is from here, so she'll be coming back at another stage and she'll mm. be able to build on all this cordial. But I was wanting to do something that was really specific to here, a, you know, a story, tell a story that was specific to this part of the country. And, you know, it just so happens that Kathy's from here as well. She is Waitaha, Kaitahu, um, Kati Mamoi. So um, these winds, this story here is a whakapapa of the weather. And Kathy whakapapas to here and whakapapas to where the story comes from. So this is part of the connection and of her being within this. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. I might actually just read, mm. instead of recounting the story, it's just a little section in this book, um, Tikal Talks. So, Tione Tare Tikal. He is a rangatira tōhunga of repute, um, one of the last to go through the old school of learning. But he does say that you know they're meant to have reached their full learning by the time they are about 14 or 15, but his teachers died when he was uh, 11 or 12, so he didn't get that last little bit of learning, but he was one of the last ones to go through uh, with the old teachers. So every now and then in the book he'll go, and that's all I know. The this, this story will stop because he didn't get the last little bit. But this particular whakapapa, the story of these winds, they're Maui's aunties. Yeah, so this is the whakapapa of Maui. So, Mahuika, his maternal grandfather, had a twofold existence, being called Mahuika on land and Mudi Rakafinua at sea. One of his two gigantic bodies dwells in the water and the other lives on shore as fire or as the guardian of fire. Now, he married Hinepunui Otoka. So this is the wind. They were aligned with the compass, as best we could. Um, so coming from the south. So it's really nice that there's this window here as well because um, this is the mother and she's the most powerful wind as well coming in from the south. Hinepunui Otoka. And they had a family of five girls. Yep, and these are our other winds that are here. And there was Hine Aroraki. Now, Hine Aroraki actually is Maui's mother. And Hine Aroraki is the, the Atua, or the deity ancestor, of the soaring of birds. So that's the wind that she controls. And then there's Hine Aro Aro Pari, is, uh, controls the echoes on the cliffs. Uh, and Hine Ho Une is on the edge of the sand, controls the sand, and is from the west to the north, coming over this way, angled over there. And we've got Hine Roroki. Uh, so the northerly, over in the corner over there, and Hine Rotia, a westerly, 
So there's a map, I think, in the, yeah, mm. if you're interested in coming back and kind of uh, mapping all their different directions as part of their story. He says here, this was right away in the beginning of things, so early, that I do not know if Tiri Tafiri Matia had as yet exercised any control over the wind. So I don't know if you know any, but the um, whakapapa of Rangi and Papa and Tafiri Matia was one of the children who was, you know, supposedly the atua of the winds. Yeah, Kathy's actually got more um, about this, mm. and, and from her point of view, there's kind of there's eel, you know, who become comes before everything else, before the darknesses, all the the periods of nothing and this whakapapa Maui's whakapapa comes direct from eel so it doesn't go through rangi and papa so that's why there's these separate uh, you know winds mm. and Kathy's corridor as well brings in a lot more about the water eh? about wainuiatia and the why the big Absolutely. Grandfather water as well. <laughs> it's quite funny because I'm working on an, another work at the moment which is based down here. This is with Alex Monteith who's been working with different museums down in Dunedin and Christchurch as well. And there's all this kind of footage about water and it's so funny because I keep finding myself in these conversations about who's more important, the wind or the water? <laughs> <laughs> and it came up with this one as well because Kathy had keep on going... You're talking about the wind too much. It's all about the water. <laughs> the water comes first. And in fact, in the um, Tione Tikal story, that's what he talks about that. He talks about it as being flat, but fat. Yeah, so it wasn't flat like a saucer, but yeah, kind of. <laughs> like a bowl. Like a bowl. He talks like a saucer full of water with sand around the end. But the water was always there. And so this is the kōrero that Kathy keeps coming back to, yeah. is the importance of the water. Can you talk about how the winds move the... And the winds move the water, that's yeah. right. But the weather is being this kind of combination of the kind of the water and winds and how integral the air is in the, the way that the water you know, becomes mist and winds and rains and that combination of those elements. And Tione Tikal says the wahine that move the wind, they move it with big tawhiri-whiri, like with these big fans. Yeah. But something, I think it's one of these moments where he says... That's what they do, but I don't actually know how. Yeah. It's sort of like this ellipsis in the in the story where he doesn't he didn't learn everything. Yeah. It says each wind goddess holds a big tafidifidi fan, which she uses to fan the winds over the earth, but what the fans are made out of I know not. <laughs> yeah. I love that in a story when it's like it's it's a narrative, it's like collectively shared and it's come it's very old, but there's also things that we can't that aren't known or the narrative is not this sort of continuous linear form it actually has these moments where you're like he can't explain everything yeah yeah, yeah. so the idea with this these elements that we're trying to tell with the story is to kind of give you the enough to kind of yeah an idea of the story a kind of a shape of the whakapapa and also ho the word ho uh, is important here because ho can be translated as a it's a breath ho is also the wind but ho is also um, a vital essence, but like modi, they kind of work in with each other. So, um, you know, the body being made out of, we have our kind of physical tinana, we have a modi, a kind of a life force, and, and ho is a, and a wairua, a spirit, and ho being this um, kind of vitality, this essence. Um, mm. So ho is a kind of a key word in how, how the story is told yeah. as well. Can you just talk a bit about the practical process or the process of you and Kathy working together? Like yeah. how that, I know you've worked together a bit in the past and you're like mates, yeah. um, but how did it actually, yeah, how did you guys share the story and divide up the sort of labour of making the work? 
Yeah. So once we'd kind of got the, some of these ideas, we were kind of back and forth with this particular story and how the water would be incorporated as well. Cassie came in and performed in the studio, and that was quite an interesting process because uh, Cathy's a, a dancer and a performer, and she kind of goes into a zone. And it was really interesting. I, let's just do this all in one take. We can just kind of go through all the different wins. And it was really interesting that she kind of physically changed as she got on to the next one, and her voice changed as well. So it was, uh, yeah, really interesting process. Mm. She leaves that with me. I play around and do the sound editing, sound design, but then I'd go back with her and I'd talk about the placing and the order, and we'd just kind of play around with that a bit. So mapping out the space, which we did, and so mm. I'd go back and Kathy and I pulled over the map and worked out how we might uh, prepare the space. Mm. Yeah, so a bit of back and forth, but yeah, mostly all technical stuff is all left to me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's super interesting to me, like working on the show, I've learned so much about this room, which is something you always, I guess, like learn about making any exhibition, the sort of material properties, the acoustic properties, all the materials you have to deal with. But this is, for me, been an exhibition where it's looked outward a lot as well, like in really literal ways, like Fiona Connor and Lucy Scare proposed to cut these, cut these or reveal these windows that were in the existing, existed in the structure of the building, but they've been kind of erased to make the, the perfect kind of white cube that lots of the exhibitions rely on um, and also to take off the doors of the workshop to kind of reveal the, the inner workings of the gallery in that way and take the vinyl off the back the back window so there's a lot more like the space suddenly feels a lot more porous and a lot more like connected with what's going on outside and then in the sort of inverse of that bringing the hoe or the winds in here and yeah Rachel and I spent a couple of months ago spent quite a long time in a cold morning playing with our iPhones with the uh, compass directions which we're not agreeing between two iPhones um, to figure out the way that these winds were located. So I guess it's been a really interesting exercise in recognising how the gallery, how all of us are uh, interconnected with a lot of much larger systems, a kind of liveness in the space, which, yeah, which has been an amazing thing to kind of learn and, and think through. Yeah. I was wondering, maybe we'd listen through a cycle of the work and then we can take some questions after that if you'd like to, or it can just sort of, yeah, we can just move into a different sort of space.
Does feel like a space at Romo, hey? No? Yeah. I, I'd love to open up some questions if anyone has them. Before that, I, I just want to say thank you for, yeah, thank you for your work on this and for, or for me anyway, helping to make me so much more aware of, of the place in which I am, of the surroundings, which I do relate to sort of a, a type of reading experience that real attentiveness, sometimes it is with your eyes and your brain, but sometimes it's, it's like this listening with the whole body, which... Yeah, it's been a really amazing experience working with you, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. Um, did anyone have anything they'd like to say? Or sing, or, you know. <laughs> um, the book that you referred to, is it in the library? I think there's often multiple copies in all libraries. This one that's called Treasures from the Ancient World of the Māori and I've got another copy that says um, Tales of the Canterbury Māori. So, uh, yeah, some fantastic stories in there. There's something like 16 copies in the library. And also, we, we saw um, in the Urupa out at um, Rāpaki, at the church there, that's where he's buried. So I saw his gravestone the other day. It's like a very local um, person. Yeah, and then someone... One of, one of his for obviously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't know which of the stories. Uh, at the church at Rapagi. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Died in 1947, is that right? Yeah, yeah, not so long after that story, so it's really interesting that that happened. Yeah. I have a technical question. That beautiful rain recording, is that a recording that you made, and if so, where? So that is a combination of different places. I've got a, a hydrophone, buried that in the sand just near the shore, so there's that kind of click, click, click. Yeah, so that's kind of the water and the sand that's kind of rubbing past it. Not actually any rain in there, but it's interesting how white noise can be all sorts of things. But yeah, mainly that kind of that texture is kind of sand and water running past the hydrophone. Yeah. Um, a similar question from me is how did you record um, the wind sounds that are coming out of the main speaker here? Wind is really, really hard to capture. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they're very elusive. That's why they're saying their names rather than we're trying to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, I guess we wanted them just to claim the space. So it's just that, that idea of the, uh, especially in Te Ao Māori, you know, the power of the name and the spoken word as well, so for them claim, claiming their space, yeah. I found they make you move your body quite a lot as well, because we were trying to listen to, they're obviously orientated really specifically, and then trying to hear where the sound's coming from, and of course it, it is a material thing that's like bouncing off these different surfaces, but I found myself like being steered by the work, it was quite interesting, you do this strange little dance in the middle of the space when you're trying to follow it, yeah, which is an interesting thing for a narrative to do, like physically make you re... Um, yeah, shift. Yeah. But to answer your question, there are some winds up here, but not down there. That's all water and a lot of processing. You do a lot of kind of, you know, digital fiddling. But with those winds, the good winds is actually the sound of the objects that they're blowing through rather than the actual kind of um, wind itself. So, um, yeah, it's out the back of my place. There's a good uh, stand of bamboo. So, I mean, they click a bit, but if you get the bits where you don't get the clicking, <laughs> uh, you get some quite nice sound of the wind coming through there. But you do have to kind of tidy it up and roll off 
certain frequencies to get the kind of the cliche, you know, the, the sound that we hear with our ears. Yeah. Mm. Mm. With the nor'wester, is that over there, like the sort of like predominant Canterbury wind? Do you know yeah. which which one that relates to? Uh, yes. Yeah, so this is uh, this one over here, which is um, Huone. Oh. Yeah, so apparently according to Kathy, and this was kind of completely unrelated, and she had this kind of th- list of winds, and there was one particular healing wind, uh, oh, really? which she reckoned was the one that came from the west to the northwest, right. and uh, is it northwest to northwest, um, east to north, yeah, east to north. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that what you were talking about? What did you say? Um, yeah. Just when people say they're northwester, this yeah. is like intense, crazy, warm, up in the wind. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I want it. Um, so I'm just thinking, because um, our westerly is Rotia, actually. Mm. So Hoone goes east to north. Yeah. So westerly mm. towards north, it will be um, Hine Rotia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Mm. Hey, so maybe we bring things to a close. Oh, you have a question? It's not really a question, but just about that. Thank you. And um, maybe more of a question for the room. Um, because I, I felt like a temperature change in me as I heard different winds from different directions and I was really um, quite astounded by that in, in the way that people have been using their voice to capture that that change and I just wanted to know if anyone else felt that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's quite like it's really embodied. Body now, it? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I hadn't quite connected like the the sound of temperature. Yeah. Mm. Nice idea. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I had a short question. I was reading in a book that Gertrude lent me about a um, a writer was talking about her experience of teaching writing. And she said that um, in all her years of doing it in these writing programs, the only people who exhibited a, what she said, superhuman power of listening as students were dancers. And I've been thinking about that a bit over the last couple of weeks, and I was wondering, and then I was thinking about your relationship with, and work with Kathy, just wondering if you could talk a bit about that as, you know, working with her as a dancer and listening. Absolutely. Our conversations really came out of talking about um, sound and movement, how that kind of whole idea of, you know, the becoming and the unfolding of whakapapa and, and sound and movement as being this, um, that relationship, more kind of exploring the idea. And that idea of whakarongo, of listening with your body as well. So that's definitely something that Kathy works with and uh, is very sensitive too, which is why she's been such a great collaborator that we've kind of been able to talk about sound through these different kind of senses and stories. Yeah, Kathy would have a lot of interesting stuff to say about that specifically, so uh, come back when she's down here. Mm. Yeah, we're just finalising the date, but the conversation we had, it linked really directly to what you said about ho being something mm. like an internal vitality or breath, mm. but also the wind ho, and then... Kathy also brought in the water, the, mm. the idea of the waters that are in us and then the waters that have brought us here or that we move through. Yeah. Um, so that sort of, I don't know, like micro, macro relational thing, dynamic mm. that's happening between uh, wind or breath and, and water. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, you know, the woody, the kind of foundation of Māori performance art and, and that being a kind of also described as the tremble of life. 
And so there's that kind of nice relationship between, I guess, the performing arts and te ao Māori and um, this idea of the tremble of life and, of course, vibration being fundamental to sound, mm. talking about sound, the physics of sound as well. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's have a clap. I just got a little song. So just yeah, just Marty Styles. I'll finish off with a song. This one's actually written by my cousin, so it's um, specific to my whanau up there on the uh, in the east coast. But um, this, um, I guess, is for me to uh, call out to these atua, but also to my tipuna. So I'll stand up for that. It's only a section of it, so sorry. Rachel, my cousin's Rachel as well. Rachel Aroha. <laughs> so give it a rage for the song. Ke te karanga mai ngati puna Ke te rerino ngaroi mata I te puta ke umanuaru I te paringa Ote arai. Nō reira, e te whānau, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. That was Rachel Shearer talking about her sound installation made with Cathy Livermore. We hope you enjoyed listening to Te Huri Wai today, but be sure to come into the gallery to experience it in all of its seven-channel glory before Light Enough to Read by closes on Sunday the 25th of June. Thank you for listening, and tune in again next month on Friday 16th July at 8pm for our next episode of Art Not Science. Ka kite anō. The Physics Room is generously supported by Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Three Boys Brewery, Scientech, Resine Paints and the Crater Rim.